Sounds like a story to me Some crazy fable That you would not believe Oh, but ain't you Welcome to the Avram Davidson universe where you will get to read some of the best short stories ever written. As a youth, Neil Gaiman fell in love with Avram's stories. Philip K. Dick adored him. Ursula K. Le Guin found his stories wonderful. Ray Bradbury compared him to Kipling. Each episode will include a special guest, an amazing short story, and a discussion of that story. Enjoy classic stories like Or All the Seas with Oysters, the Gollum, the sources of the Nile, and many others. And today we will be listening to Mr. Folsom Feels Fine, published in the investigations of Avram Davidson with our special guest, Michael. Michael Santiago. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes. Me. That's you. That's you, baby. Michael Santiago is a serial expat avid traveler and writer of all kinds, originally from New York City and later relocated to Rome in 2016 and Nanjing, where we met Nanjing, China in 2018. He enjoys the finer things in life, like walks on the beach, existential conversations, and swapping murder mystery ideas. <laughs> our murder, oh yes, we've done them before. They're quite fun. Keen on exploring themes of humanity within fiction and fictitious contexts. He's an aspiring author. And Mike, uh, welcome to the Avram Davidson universe. I want to talk about my, so I chose this story, which is Mr. Folsom Feels Fine. We'll listen to it in just a minute. But I wanted to read this with Mike and Emma because, Emma, Mike is such a traveler. Mike's been to how many countries, Mike? I just came back from Colombia in April, so that was my 40th country. Yeah. In a few years. So. That's so, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, so Mike's been traveling a lot, been to lots of different places. We met in a different country altogether. Uh, so I thought a story about travel and a story about kind of taking a risk, uh, moving somewhere else would be appropriate. Um, mm. Yeah. And the themes of humanity. Hmm. Can you just like, tell me some of those themes that come to mind when you wrote this in your bio? Hmm. <laughs> well, I've been using the same bio across all the publications I'm attached to. So essentially that's. Okay. You're over like it. <laughs> yeah, but. And <laughs> In terms of the themes, I usually write about, well, I like to break down the fabric of society, the systems, the elements that kind of bind us, economics, and really explore that in a fictitious context. Things that kind of break that herd mentality, if that makes any sense. Mm, just kind of like blindly going and living through the system and all of its bureaucracies without questioning it and then sort of like coming up for air. Pretty much, yeah. So even with the story we're about to go through, I mean, looking at the system of pensions and all the bureaucratic stuff in order to live your life happily ever after until old age is just, you shouldn't have to think about pensions when you're in your 20s or your 30s, but that's just the way things are. You mean you don't trust the golden age uh, retirement company or the good old retirement company? The good old days. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I definitely didn't, but maybe we should, maybe we should listen to the story first. So the, the, the listeners know what we're talking about, huh? Oh yes, yes, yes. We are going to get into some uh, sticky situations here where you cannot escape bureaucracies. So we will be listening to Mr. Folsom feels fine, which is published in the investigations of Avram Davidson by Avram Davidson. Mr. Folsom Feels Fine Mr. Folsom Feels Fine was published in 1986, during the period in Avram Davidson's life when he wrestled with the Veterans Administration to secure his meager pension. What is the secret of a successful retirement? Some point to sound health and good medical care. Others point to a solid portfolio of investments and pension benefits. But Mr. Folsom found another direction. He followed the trail to gunk up high and the notorious illegal bushwax trade. Beware. G.D. Some people can handle foreign travel, whereas others simply can't. 
Some can go live in a Himalayan satrapy so remote that it is not perceived on maps more than once in a century. And even that once, it appears sketchily in some learned journal showing the distribution of its 37 species of venomous earwigs, can go live in it and do just fine, riding the small, fur-bearing ponies as though they'd been hired for 20 minutes at a fun park and eating the roast slugs as though they were mighty Max Burgers, whereas there are those who get Tomaine, or its latest equivalent, from a tortilla chip three feet south by southeast from the border of the USA. Who can say why some people can travel by scooter through Bendidi-infested crags and never encounter one single Bendido, and yet other people manage to alienate the usually imperturbable royal horsemen of Bothnia by dropping chewing gum wrappers in front of their royal horses for a fine of seven bobos? Mr. Edgar Folsom, who retained the same faith in the advertisements that he had had in his twenties, had for a long while planned to retire on $220 a month, and had lavished his savings upon the good old days retirement company. Often he and Mamie, Mrs. Edgar, had been almost obliged to chuckle when they considered how they, and other subscribers to the GODRC, were going to beat the system even if nobody else was. Except maybe a handful of intractable Indians in the wild rice country who could, of course, always live on wild rice. And baskets. Lots and lots of edible baskets woven from succulent shoots. Oh, I gotta hand it to you two, often said unmarried sister and sister-in-law, Etta Folsom. Their grandfather had not been originally named Folsom, he had originally been named something harsh and Nordish, a fact which only a distant cousin still claimed to remember. Mamie Folsom had long ago lost this man's address and made little attempt to find it. You too know what you're doing. Did Mamie know what she was doing when she passed away, quite suddenly and quite silently, two weeks before his effective, compulsory, retirement date? Perhaps she did. Edgar's slightly delayed letter of notice to the GODRC was answered, eventually, by a firm of attorneys of which Edgar had never heard. It informed him that the good old days retirement company, whose ads had not appeared in magazines for quite some time, no longer existed, as, under the laws of a not very well-known and distant state, it had wound up its affairs. Its assets now belonged to a giant conglomerate specializing in, among other things, the manufacture of waxes and wines, and the management of ski lodges. This organization had somehow, certainly quite legally, acquired the assets of the good old days retirement company without acquiring any of its liabilities. Anyway, the letter pointed out, you couldn't retire on $220 a month anymore. Not their fault, but as a matter of policy, if not benevolence, being a bunch of real good guys who know how it is, the conglomerate was going to make Mr. Folsom, in his own right and as sole heir and legatee of Mamie P. Folsom, deceased, a lump sum, that's it, payment of $1,100. Well, you were always a very stubborn boy, Edgar, and no one could ever tell you what to do. Now, these quilts I'm going to take with me, those quilts I'm letting the Historical Society have, and this quilt I'm letting you take with you, said Etta. Take with me where? Where are we going? her brother asked. He was slightly bewildered. If Mamie hadn't always told him what to do, Etta had always told him what to do. I am going to the sons and daughters of Bothnia residents in Calico Falls. Women are admitted at sixty, men at eighty. In the meanwhile, where you are going, I'm sure I couldn't say. Don't you have a pension? Hand me the wrap of tissue paper, please. Mr. Folsom smote his brow. A pension, he cried. Of course! In the pensions office of the Civil Functionaries Administration, Mr. Roswell P. Saul addressed his assistant, Mr. Merton Rush. Anything new today, Mert? I've uh, just opened a new file, said Mr. Rush. Application for pension from a Mr., he consulted the file, Edgar Folsom from Wampanoag. Don't matter where from, said his superior. What's his timage? 
Timage is uh, 17 years, 7 days. He doesn't qualify for full payment, Rush. I know that. Minimum pension of, um, let me calculate a second, um, $220 a month. Write him. Application denied. Subject named above may appeal. You know the routine. I know the routine. Then we'll hold up the appeal for five years, and of course he draws no interest. Of course. But Mr. Merton Rush did not move back into his own office, and Roz Sowell asked in some surprise, What are you waiting for, then? Mert reminded his boss that it was a CFA policy to grant three such applications without delay monthly, that so far they had granted only two, and that it was the last day of the month. Oh, um, yes, so it is. Shoot. Ah, uh, well, grant it. He'll soon enough try to collect the pension in a foreign country with a subversively lower cost of living. Then we'll jump him. Mert says, oh boy, yes, is stopped, suspended pending investigation. That's right. We gotta think of the taxpayers. Etta had a very nice room with her own foyer facing the granite statue of the intrepid Bothnian on the lawn. Constant hot tap water for making instant coffee. Well, have you made up your mind yet, Edgar, what you're going to do? Your lease runs out this month and your rent will be raised. Mr. Folsom straightened his bow tie. He always had a little trouble with it. Well, I certainly hope and trust the president will do something about it. Etta was very patriotic, but... Why should he do something about it? She asked, for once a bit surprised. Well, I wrote and I asked him. Oh, you... Edgar, what's that sticking out of your pocket instead of a nice, clean, hanky, a letter? What would you do if I weren't here to remind you? Deftly, she opened and read. Well, I never. You're going to get a civil functionary partial pension of $220 a month. Oh, for goodness sake. Edgar, however, wasn't surprised. Not at all. There, you see. I guess an American citizen can write to his president if he wants results. Guess that... Good old days retirement company. He fixed their little red wagon sure enough. For once, Etta had not much to say, but she said it. You can't retire on $220 a month. Have you seen the prices lately? Where do you shop? Tut, said Edgar. I'll go live in some country with a lower cost of living. If you can't lick him, join him, huh? The young person in the travel agency repeated his question. Where can you go for $1,100? Well, uh, the picturesque Republic of La Banana has just been opened for tourism and foreign migration. We got this bunch of literature in just today, the picturesque Republic of La Banana, which gave its name to the familiar succulent yellow fruit, contains 152 species of edible wild slugs, also many colorful parrots. Here, you can read it while I make out your package. In the newly opened consulate and travel office of the Republic of La Banana, Bomba Dusbuz Yambach looked at Mr. Folsom listlessly. You wish to go to our country? Fine, so go. One moment. Health precaution. Stick out your tongue, please. Thirty-seven dollars you pay me. Okay, now I make out your permission. Mr. Folsom had never traveled very much. You're put? Mamie used to ask. Stay put. He now inquired, Permission for what? Bumbo Dusbuz Jambuck looked up, surprised. Everything, he replied. Enter, exit, transit, operate steamroller. Even you may to run for elective office, save that no more we have elections. Okay, all finish, here. Mr. Folsom took the large and colorful paper, folded it. When does it have to be renewed? The Bumbo suddenly seemed bored. How I know. I am not prophet. Do not push fates. Perhaps never. You think we are tyranty? Go. Edgar went. In the capital hamlet of Gunk Up High, several gorges away from the non-capital hamlet of Gunk Not So High, Mr. Folsom found there was something of a housing shortage. The best he could obtain for himself was an eight-room popic at a rental of one dollar per room per month. 
the landlord insisting on renting the Poppik as a single unit. The other natives rolled their eyes at such cupidity and murmured a local proverb loosely translated as, Foreigners and their welcome money often make the rich richer. It was, of course, far more room than Edgar needed, but he found that the space gradually filled with the picturesque native furniture, artwork, and bric-a-brac which he found it amusing to buy at the Weenie Bazaar. The great big bazaar dealt mostly in milch sheep and rhinoceros legs. Sometimes he spent as much as two or three dollars a month on such items. Goro goro lunchpach, as they say in the pocky idiom of la banana, meaning, so the time does pass even so. Well, what did I tell you? said Mr. Roswell Saul. Didn't he run true to form? Here's a change of address for his civil functionary partial pension check, just as I predicted. You certainly can pick him, chief. Now, theoretically, Roz pushed the compliment aside, any American citizen may elect to receive his pension anywhere in the world. Andorra, Oz, Borabulaga, anywhere. But we don't like him to. We know that nobody can live on that kind of money. Where's the cost of his car? Where's his gas money? You know what a TV set costs in some of these countries with subversively low standards of living? Dishwashers? As for, say, the price of beef, well, you just price it yourself. If we can't make it, they can't make it. No, Mert, less a fellow's getting a full career pension of, well, say at least $2,000 a month, there's no way he can live on his pension, which means, well, you know what it means. Merton nodded his birdie head. Illicit enterprise. He rolled out the syllables with relish, relish and unction. Absolutely. Smuggling scotch whiskey, promoting ox races, and increasingly, the notorious bushwax trade. His assistant agreed with him. Well, that's terrible stuff, that bushwax. Terrible, said his superior. Terrible was hardly the word for it. It was diuretic, euphoric, and non-addictive. No wonder the pensions office of the Civil Functionaries Administration worked hand-in-glove with the Illegal Ear Substances Division of the Crackdown Department. So let's put a stop on his pension and he can swim back if he likes and file an appeal. There's a good ten years he won't be robbing the taxpayers. Why are you just standing there, Mert? Merton said because they'd already put stops on 835 pensions that month already, which was tops, according to policy, and so they'd better wait till next month. Don't rock the boat, in other words. You said it, chief. Well, you may be right. I have a sort of nose for these things, but next month we drop the Himalayan mountains on him. He and his assistant laughed soundlessly. Mr. Edgar Folsom never drank scotch whiskey thought the ox races were smelly, and would have been bored by TV had there been any. The mountain ranges made it impracticable. As for washing his dishes, he threw them all into the gorge behind his house and got new ones. He was spending so little money, he was obliged to buy quite a number of boxes to store the money he didn't spend. He was by now probably the richest man in gunk up high, and the lower caste of natives never came near his house at night, lest the gods, who obviously love rich men, else why are they rich, answer that one, would you, eat their kidney fat. They may not know much, those innocent, childlike, very dirty natives, but they know that without kidney fat, you just ain't got it. One day, Mr. Edgar Folsom was strolling along a road. Path, the very particular might call it, which had yet to receive the biannual attentions of the steamroller. The fact is that the dictator was very fond of operating it himself, and paid no attention to any of the schedules the Department of Public Works submitted to him very, very occasionally. Rather incuriously, he observed someone he rather thought was a foreigner. In fact, this one admitted as much to him, saying, I am a foreigner. What brings you here? Not that it isn't a nice little place. The man said he was allowing vortices of energy to carry him along as he observed the way and the eternal snows. Oh. The foreigner took him by the arm and slightly turned him. He gestured. 
just cast your gaze through thee like mists of illusion and tell me if there are three energy forms in uniform standing at the crossroads. Mr. Folsom slightly squinted. Well, he said, usually there are two policemen standing there. I don't know why. I mean, there's never that much traffic. But today I guess there are three. The foreigner said that that which was not an enigma was an illusion. Just point out your house. I mean, the compass point, where the non-real you is dwelling, as it were, man. There? Good. Now, would you do me one big favor? My arm hurts today. A mere illusion, to be sure, but would you just let me put this in your case, and I'll meet you later? Right now it's my, um, time of withdrawal and meditation. Of the three at the crossroads, only one spoke sufficient English to be more than merely amusing. This was Bumbo Yim-Yam Hutchkutch. Ah, Mr. Edgar Folsom, you are out to ramble, as often, eh? Mr. Folsom acknowledged it. I was taking some snapshots with my little old Kodak brownie camera, and the people there started yelling, so I stopped and gave them some pennies. Anyway, I call them pennies. So then they all kissed my coat lapels and gave me what they said is the stuffed head of a Yeti. I put it in my briefcase. No, that's not it. I don't know what this is. Some other foreigner asked me to take it down the hill for him. I guess because it'll help his hurt arm. And he gazed round the mountain-circled universe with his candid eyes. From the policeman, meanwhile, had come noises of suspicion, irritation, and something which another might have taken for dismay. Said the bombo, We will take it down the hill for you, mister. We will take care to find him and alleviate his hurt arm. What, to think he can move about with this stash and pay us nothing? Proceed upon your ramble, Mr. Folsom, and may you live in our nation for a hundred thousand eons. Well, chief, said Merton, guess what just came in? Some more uh, appeals against the estopment of pensions, I suppose, suggested Mr. Saul indifferently. The Pacific Ocean and the entirety of the Indu Sea might have been filling with swimming appellants, much cared he. Nay, not so, Merton told him. It's the monthly exchange list from the Illegal Ear Substances Division of the Crackdown Department, and guess what? Folsom Edgar, in La Banana, has been instrumental in catching a cache of illegal bushwhacks. They gazed at each other with a wild surmise. Then, slowly, but with admiration, Mr. Saul said, I guess he is one of the IED's men. This pension thing, it's just his cover. Of course he doesn't have to live on it. Get the big red rubber stamp and stamp his file NTBTW. Get going now, Mert. And Merton, bowing his head respectfully, proceeded to affix the indication that Edgar Folsom's pension was never to be tampered with. A civil functionary has many, many duties. The public scarcely knows. As for Mr. Edgar Folsom, he has grown tired of hoarding his money. For one thing, he sends contributions to the worthy causes he finds mentioned in the worn, worn copies of Reader's Digest that come his distant way as padding in the ox caravans. And for another, he has bought a choice and select herd of jet-black milch sheep, plus three dancing bears. He feels just fine. Now, we're back. Uh, Emma, Mike, what did you think? What do you think of this story? What do you think of these bureaucracies going on here? <laughs> Mike? <laughs> How foul can I get with my language? Uh, oh, not too foul. <laughs> Oh, okay. Yeah, listen to Robert. <laughs> Slightly foul, not too foul. Um, the story itself, in the beginning, I felt it was a little bit slow paced, but then it kind of hooked me when he went to the Banana Republic or oh, wait, yes, no, La slow. Banana, the Republic oh, of Republic. La Banana. Yeah, but beforehand, just kind of looking at the bureaucracy and all the. I don't know, the constraints of having to figure out a pension. And if you don't have your pension, 
stacked up by the time you're i'm not sure what mr Folsom's age was uh you basically can't live your life you still have to be tied down to money so who knows where this story could have taken if he didn't choose to live abroad he could have ended up having to go back to work take up a part-time job as a pizza hut delivery driver so i do think um it analyzes that element that maybe not too many people are looking at because it is coming from the focal point of somebody who is much older i'm presuming i mean with a pension and a lot of people perhaps in our age bracket 20s 30s are not looking at pensions right now and retirement plans and old folks homes and what's what's to come when you become disabled or terminal or or what so but it did feel like a story as it went on as if dr seuss kind of broke his norm and he started writing maybe a little bit more mature stories so i think when it went into the element of was it you you get 50 slug you can eat 50 slugs or something like that a day there was a part of that in the story yes <laughs> yeah all the whimsical whim wham of like dr seuss's storytelling methods it felt very much like if hey i'm gonna go write some serious literature now so that was my takeaway on it hmm you're actually so right, because I do know that Avram lived in an area that was that had a lot of children's book writers mm-hmm. at the same time. Like there was Dr. Seuss and uh, Maurice Sendak and Shel Silverstein all kind of living pretty close to each other. I wonder if there was ever any like interaction there. I should probably talk to, to Seth about that, but I've never mm-hmm. made that connection. But you're totally right. There is like a Dr. Seussian um, flavor there somewhere, but yeah, for adults. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Dr. Seuss does have some scary books out there, but uh, yeah, I wonder if (laughs) Auburn was hanging out with Dr. Hook in the medicine show. The uh, Seussical elements, I think really come out, like you're saying, once he goes overseas, once he goes to the Republic of La Banana. And I feel like there are some characters that are completely Susical, for instance, the foreigner who's a hippie just talking about people being uh, energy forces. That guy, that guy was a strange one. Um, yeah, he's definitely strange. Yeah. I yeah. think for me, the uh, was the Bombo Dustbuster Jambak and yeah. Bombo Tim Yam Hutch Just the naming convention themselves is like Phil's Dr. Seuss. Mm. And then even the, the presentation through the audio when uh, I'm not sure who narrated it, but it felt very, I don't know, sort of a caricature of those cultures and that sort of person that would probably sound like that. So, yeah. Yeah. There's like a lot of different characters there too. And I done, I, it was kind of like unclear at first, in the beginning, right, that I almost forgot about this by the time the story ended and I went back to the beginning. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, there was that whole thing with his wife and his sister in law. And um, I forgot about that world that had been built. But none of the characters felt like the I couldn't tell who was the villain. Everybody, mm. I couldn't trust a single character here, really. And I didn't like Maybe I would have liked the wife. I don't know. She wasn't there long enough. But there's even that hint of suspicion where maybe she knew what she was doing when she died yeah. right before that pension thing happened. I didn't know to trust anybody. There was also like the good old days retirement company. There was the pensions office people. There was the travel agent that was like, you should go to this place where you can eat 50 slugs and just selling it. And then there was that guy who was like, we need to do that inspection for you when he got there. Bombo Dustbuster Jam batch at the consulate in La Banana. And then there was the dictator of La Banana that didn't pave the roads ever. And then there was the drug slug- smuggling foreigner who was also kind of a hippie. And then there was the guy, um, the local Bombo Tim Yam Hutchkutch at the end of the crossroads who actually took the drugs off of Mr. Folsom's hands. Mm-hmm. And none of them were necessarily like obviously heroes or obviously villains i wouldn't say there's one primarily like an entity that is like the prototype to uh of the the main target of avram's critique so i wanted to ask you michael who you thought was the biggest villain of the story or who avram was most um heavily critiquing Mm. Mm. 
for me, I didn't look at any particular individual as being a villain. They were mm-hmm. all just people with real world motives, people that had secrets, people that went about their lives. For example, the um, was it the dispatcher or no, the guy that worked at the consulate. Yeah, he was very smug and very, I don't know, not as welcoming as the travel agent made it seem like it would his journey mm. would be moving to this country. But I wouldn't say it was a particular person that was a villain. It was more of a back to like the norms. I would say the pension and the bureaucracy <laughs> is the villain. So the system is the villain hmm. that this guy had to basically, I mean, I don't remember the exact amount, but less than a thousand bucks. And hmm. he was supposed to live his life out that way, that he got so desperate that he had to end up going to some foreign country. Um, at least this is what I'm taking out of it. So I would say this this is this the economic system, the, this, the system of it in general, the societal norms, having to worry about focus about pensions, how money kind of like dictates everything throughout your entire life, even until old age and death. Yeah. It, I would say that in itself is like probably the villain. Hmm. Yeah, you're right. I can kind of see that because all of them are kind of no one's so egregiously evil. Everybody is just kind of using their the power that they have in the positions that they're in to get by, basically. Mm. And in so doing, it just shows that the system kind of forces these people, you know, whatever, into being in these positions where they do some shady stuff. But I what how the system is. That's yeah, the system's flawed, but also these guys are making that system happen. The the good old days retirement company was probably fine. You know, they even Mr. Folsom and his wife thought, wow, we're really gonna make it. This is a great investment. And then they got bought out by these guys. What are they called? Um, they are a different retirement company that eats up the good old age retirement company, and they before didn't manage retirement funds. They are people who manage, uh, what is it? They make, uh, they export wines, expensive wines, waxes, and ski resorts. And these are people who hear about people retiring on $2,000 a month. They say, well, who can retire on $2,000 a month? That's absurd. You can't go to a ski lodge every month on that. So instead they think if you were poor or middle-class, you should get nothing because the amount of money you could get is worth nothing. If you're not getting $3,000 a month, you are nothing. So they, yeah. they're they a bunch of jerks. And then the, the pension office is terrible. It has to deal with two bureaucracies. The pension office tries to um, refuse his $220 a month. And they try to uh, make sure that he, if he appeals, it's going to take five years. And they even say, we can only do three a month. And I don't care if there's a like millions of appellates still floating in the ocean waiting for their money to come. So they're, I don't know, they were pretty evil. I felt like yeah. these, these bureaucracies, but. Uh, wasn't it gross? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say even the bureaucracies themselves are stuck in the system. I mean, mm. they have to focus on pensions. They have to, you know, exploit others in order to accrue their wealth. I mean, even the drug smuggler, shady guy, but. Which arguably he's going to a foreign country to exploit those people and sell whatever product it was. That's um, another thing. Mr. Folsom to me isn't totally like, oh, he's just this innocent little guy. Maybe he's ignorant and has no idea what he's doing, but he is like posting up in a as a I don't know, neo colonizer, some might say. Hmm. Yeah, that's a tough one. He is putting money into the economy and then he does help with the bushwhacking. And the one guy that I did trust was Hutch Kutch um, because he's funny immediately and like kind of, uh, he's True. very personable. I like that guy. The other people are not personable. Most of the other people are just assholes. And this guy like jokes around with him. He says, oh, I see you're enjoying your nightly stroll. And then he instead of trying to pin it on Mr. Folsom, which he easily could have done because Mr. Folsom is completely ignorant and had no idea he was carrying this illegal bushwhack, whatever it is, um, potentially drugs. He does not pin it on Mr. Folsom. He turns in the other guy and, and makes sure that Mr. Folsom gets his, his award, which I thought mm-hmm. was cool, cool with him. He's the only kind of 
smart and good character. I think Mr. Folsom's okay, but like you said, he's he's not a smart character. Um, Emma, we really. I want to before you go to hey, question. Hey. I kind of have like another question mm-hmm. for Michael. What do you make of Mr. Folsom writing that letter to the president oh, yeah. that he never actually remembered to mail? Yes, in his pocket. Um, can definitely tell uh, he's become a little bit senile. <laughs> I I think it was a little bit pompous of him as well. And probably a little pretentious to think that he can write and that the dictator would respond. But at mm. the same time, I mean, him forgetting that he even had the letter and was stuck in his pocket just shows that if he wasn't thinking about his pension and a long-term plan, he wasn't like, I mean, he's not going to remember a letter. So who does? Yes. <laughs> I constantly forgetting to putting things into the mail or structuring sentences correctly. Um, Yes, the poor guy could not remember to put his letter into the mail to get the money from the president. Um, I wanted to, Emma has a really good question. I'm going to steal it. Sorry, Emma. But this is really interesting thinking about uh, Avram's connection to things. Because Emma and I, as we've been reading these investigations, we noticed that often it's like, like you said earlier, Emma, Avram would travel and go to different places and start to write about these places or have experiences and make them put them into his fiction. So Emma has a good question here about the intro that um, Mrs. Davis wrote uh, explores something that Avram was actually going through where he is trying to collect his pension. He's trying to deal with these bureaucracies. And so Emma's asked, reading this story, what do you think Avram has hoped for his own life? Do you think he's kind of testing out a a potential future here and what would have the um, ideal outcome of his own predicament someone looking for a pension uh, have been at the time so like as an author so a writer who's trying to have retirement um what how would you how would you how should i phrase that last part emma like comparing an author who's looking for retirement and this mr Folsom trying to live somewhere where his money will stretch So like if Avram is kind of working out his own personal issues through mm-hmm. his fiction, what what did he work out through this story? Mm-hmm. Besides just expressing how much the bureaucracy of the pension system sucked. Like did he identify as Mr. Folsom and whatever happened to Mr. Folsom was like something feasible in Avram's mind that he actually desired, or did it feel like he was critiquing even that outcome? Not necessarily like asking you your understanding of history at the time and what a writer would have had as options for their pension. But like what, if, if anything, what's the moral of the story that maybe as a writer, you were trying to get at through writing this? Hmm. I want to take Mike, you jump in in a second, but I have, I have an idea I wanted to explore based on this question, Emma. The, the last paragraph talks about after all this happens, after Mr. Folsom goes to La Banana, after he turns in that uh, bushwhacking hippie, who's not really a hippie at all, uh, after he turns him in, gets his reward, uh, he still has enough money to do like a few things as a retiree. Uh, he's donating money to these Reader's Digests. Uh, uh, foundations and they're in these old old versions of reader's digest so the foundations maybe have closed but he's donating money so that's nice he um invests in a bunch of sheep so that's nice he's actually engaging in the economy you know who knows what he will do with those sheep and then he, he buys three dancing bears very strange now i don't didn't know avram we can ask seth and i'd be very interested to see but would this be a win would avram say that sounds like a pretty yeah. nice life I like, you know, Avram has that other story, Sacheverell, which is about the circus. I feel like I would love dancing bears. Would Avram have loved dancing bears? I don't know. He's much smarter than Mr. Folsom. So is it a critique or would he be? He would have definitely remembered to mail the letter. Yeah, he would have. That's been such a well-written letter. Yeah. President would have responded to that one. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say. I don't know, Mike, what, what if... Like if you were in these shoes and Mr. Folsom's shoes, because you are also are an avid traveler, say if you and I, we suddenly found, oh my God, we have no money. 
let's retire uh, and we go to La Banana. Mike, would you be satisfied with a, a life of three dancing bears? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. Um, I'm going to change my plans. Cross on my diary. <laughs> There's not much context in terms of where he's going with that. I mean, is it going to open a circus? What do you do with three dancing bears? Start a YouTube channel, but this is what taking place in the 1980s. Yeah. YouTube internet wasn't around. <laughs> so no, I, I would not be comfortable with that three dancing bears. I would sell them maybe to was that big circus? Hannah Hannah what's the big circus called? Hannah Barbera. No, Hannah Montana. Company. Yeah, Hannah Barbera is the cartoon <laughs> company. <laughs> There's some huge circus company. I would have just sold the bears to the circus. Yeah. The Barnum, yeah. Barnum and Bailey. Um, that one, yeah. All the bears you know, I don't think there is more context for that line. I think mm -hmm. that was a classic. Like, mm -hmm. I'm gonna just hit them, hit them with this punch at the end, and make them deal with it, and try to figure it out. Like, like Avram's random thing at the very, very end to keep us on our toes. Mm -hmm. And I, I kind of get the same thing that you were saying, um, Robert. Of like, he to me, it was like the way it ended was. Avram just wants to feel fine. Like he's not mm. trying to be rich. He's not trying to be like, or, or that, that would be like the aspiration sort of, of the conclusion. Maybe he got to through working through this story is like, all he wants is enough to feel fine. Sure. Mm. You can throw in some, some dancing bears there. Um, but he just wants to get by and like simple life. Now, Mr. Folsom, I think, is a character that's a little bit of an oversimplification of a person, like the type of person that can fall into all of these sort of traps and schemes and whatnot, like of the, the good old days fund, um, mm. which might not be the case for a writer type. I, I could imagine being a little bit more angsty, uh, just, mm. you know, but maybe like there was some aspirations for farm life or just simplicity and, and stillness and just trying to get through that seemingly ridiculous process of just getting the money mm. was that, that was the bulk of it. And then it was one paragraph being like, okay, I have that now. This is all I want. All I want is some dancing bears. Is that so much to ask? Dancing bears are great everywhere. Typically, yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot to ask. A lot. <laughs> Two, maybe. Three dancing bears. I don't think so. Um, Emma, this is really interesting. And it reminds me, Mike, I'm going to give you the context a little bit. We, we did an interview with Seth Davis about a story called, I think, the third, the, the third sacred well of the temple. Not the, not the third. The third sacred well of the temple. Now, Avram yeah. often writes about traveling, and he often also writes about expats. And I notice, uh, Emma, you've pointed out some shady characters in this. They're pretty much all shady. And in that other story, they are also all shady. At first, They're all shady. They're all shady. And I remember at the end of that story, I feel like these investigations, they often have to do with traveling or um, moving into a new step of life. But then they also are so unclear at first to me why they're a mystery and i have to think and think and think why is this a mystery and often the key is at the very end at the the final paragraph and you have to do this work to unlock the puzzle of the mystery which i really enjoy so in that thir thir third god that her that word is hard to say the third sacred wall of the temple the um expat who loves the cheap life feels threatened when a new expat who is basically a blogger of the past, he's going to make the equivalent to La Banana famous. Lots of expats are going to come. It's going to get very expensive. So the main character decides, well, we don't even know that he decides. He just out of the blue murders this person, throws him down a well so he'll never be heard from again, this blogger. So the place can continue to be cheap. Now, we don't exactly know his motivations until the very final paragraph when he says, and then he walked back to the town thinking, oh, I'm hungry, essentially after murdering someone. I would certainly love a sandwich. And I am so glad that I know that forever, the sandwiches will never become expensive. So he's murdered, <laughs> he's murdered someone to make this economy never grow. And Avram in that in subtly suggests that although uh, 
maybe some people don't want the economy to grow. In this situation, it was mostly expats who want the cheap life, who are trying to keep it a secret. Lots of the actual people who have lived there forever were thinking, hey, we could make money. We could actually buy some things if people come, if tourism increases. And so I'm thinking about this story in the final paragraph of Mr. Folsom Feels Fine. This guy who's kind of an idiot, Mr. Folsom, no offense to Mr. Folsom, but he's forgetful and he, I don't know, he's just kind of a wanderer. He gets his bears, he gets his sheep, and he's rich beyond comparison in this in this place. And I'm trying to, like you asked, Emma, like, is this the good life? Living somewhere where you don't have to work and you can kind of exploit the economy? or is he an asshole like that sandwich murderer? The murderer of four right? Yeah. And he's just throwing his, like, so he doesn't have to clean his dishes. He's just throwing them in some gorge somewhere and then oh, he's yeah. buying <laughs> all the time. So he's actually destroying the ecosystem. And like, I mean, I guess, Michael, that's a context that you don't have, which is that in his, and Avram's other stories, he does kind of criticize, mm. um, foreigners coming into territories and exploiting other populations like he has other stories about even um like indigenous people in america and i think that there's even like one slight to that in this piece somewhere where they were describing Mm. um some location they were talking about an indian reservation um, but yeah, so that is a context of this story that I'm very aware of where I feel like Avram has, pro- there's probably another story out there where he's criticizing Mr. Folsom for exactly what it is he's doing, even though Mr. Folsom kind of feels like as close to what Avram would be identifying with as possible um, in this story, the character that he would be most closely identifying with. Ah, yeah, it could be a warning to himself, maybe, because he does write about traveling in a positive way often. Where it's like, yeah, let's go travel, meet new people, uh, experience new cultures. But then, yes, you could easily, as one who's doing that traveling, being an expat, you could fall into that of um, <laughs> destroying an ecosystem by throwing your <laughs> plates because it's so goddamn cheap. Um I wonder if he is warning himself here. If he does identify with Mr. Folsom, he's telling himself not to be Mr. Folsom. Complicated. Hmm. Complicated. Any thoughts, Michael? Yeah. um, I would say that it's interesting, considering it's the only story I've read from this author. um, The context you provided for the other one does sound like it's a critique of people from more privileged or well-established countries going to cheaper countries such as bobby being in taiwan instead of in the u.s sorry taiwan (laughs) nobody cares from a german mug though so oh yes my my boot (laughs) it is not beer it is coffee anyway continue sorry continue criticizing me (laughs) well i'm I'm kind of after the same pursuit i'm trying to eventually move to europe to a cheaper location because inflation in the u.s costs i mean not even just the u.s if i was living in canada i'd feel the same pressure so i think it is interesting that what's that then you'd have to eat poutine sorry continue oh i would definitely move out of canada if i had to Mm -hmm. um so i would say that it's interesting to critique this angle of it that foreigners are moving overseas and you could consider it a form of exploitation because we're moving from expensive countries with stronger economies going to cheaper places where our money's going to take us further. But intrinsically, it's not always about that. So like for me, for example, I was born in New York, lived here most of my life, but I don't necessarily want to live overseas because it's, I'm sorry, it's getting a little personal now, but I don't essentially. I'm putting my bill on now. Sorry. <laughs> I don't see myself even being stuck in the United States forever. Like my goal is to immigrate elsewhere because I align more with morality of Europe or I align more with the, I feel more in touch with the culture of Italy than I do with the culture of the United States. Mm, So it's, it's not always about, I guess, exploitation. It's more about finding yourself. So through this kind of element of uh, being an expat overseas. So that could be an, part of like the underweaving or or something that's interwoven into these narratives is that 
about finding what because even at the end of this story he bought three dancing bears like who the hell does that in a, in a foreign country no less but <clears throat> he's still basically simple guy found himself in la banana mm-hmm. with three bears so i feel like that's what it's about. <laughs> um but essentially there are foreigners that you do find which for example you brought up the uh food is so cheap let me throw let me throw crap everywhere i mean yeah that does happen a lot of places that i've traveled to there's people that expats that go out for a night out of town beer is like 25 cents i'm sure you saw this in china and then they don't even throw it in the receptacles and they're the ones littering when the local populations may not be because if it's so cheap it's like why do you even have to put in that extra effort to go recycle or throw it in a proper receptacle there's no incentive either so if you're sorry to say if you're a shit person in the u.s or anywhere you're going to be a shit person overseas and maybe more so because some of these places are lawless or like the wild west for us Mm. this law banana sounds a little bit like the wild west when the dictator spends most of his time driving a a steamroller (laughs) quite the interesting place (laughs) if you can get three dancing bears there i mean yeah, that is, that is my new goal. I would be satisfied with three dancing bears. And I put all of my money into the Taiwan economy. I, <laughs> I spend all my money here. I am thoroughly engaging in the economy here. Well, I wasn't saying you're like Mr. Folsom. I mean, you do have an well, interest in the... I do the forget Folsom. to mail my letters. So, And I would be satisfied living with three dancing bears. But right. um, that's, that, that's it, though. That's, watch the bears... <laughs> oh no 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 well no you can get four bears that's fine four okay well yeah there's no cap there's no cap there's no cap um oh sorry no i have one i just have one final question for you yeah sure okay we always we always ask this um so if you were to make this into either a tv show or a short film a film um how do you visualize it? What kind of story arc would you go for? And or do you have any actors that came to mind? Maybe like while you were even reading it, you had some in mind while you were um, imagining it. Yeah, sure. Um, I can just run through the actors that sure. go for the main role. So for the travel agent, I wanted Ben Stiller, but I didn't go. <laughs> I didn't go for Ben Stiller based on the Boy. narrative. I went on Ben Stiller based on the the voice in the, in the, uh, <clears throat> the, the reading. So mm. it just gave me like a Ben Stiller vibe. Mm. I love that. Um, the next one was it Bombo dust buster John Butch. Mm. Alec yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. I just, I just feel like that, that particular character was such a caricature of whatever, like, I guess they're trying to go like a Latin nation or Caribbean country, but it yeah. just seemed like so overblown. And I've seen Alec Baldwin do some of that. A lot of it's sketchy or controversial. So I put him in that role. Right. That's safe. <laughs> For the dictator, Giancarlo Esposito. Do you guys know who that is? Nope. Hmm. He's the, have you ever seen Breaking Bad? Mm-hmm. He's the chicken guy. I've only seen a few episodes. I don't know. <laughs> Is it a man man dressed like a chicken or a man that sells chicken? No, he's like a drug smuggler that sells chicken. Have you seen seen The Mandalorian? Yes. Only a few episodes. Oh, God. I'm not helping here. Okay, we'll skip. He plays like a lot of bad guys lately. Um, Drug smuggler Matthew McConaughey. Oh, my God. I was going to do a three, two, one. We have to say at the same time because I've feel like i know the basket i see i see your i felt like i saw your vision i thought i could guess it i wasn't gonna guess matthew mcconaughey though oh who did you guess emma for i would have guessed that michael was gonna say owen wilson i was thinking Owen. <laughs> <laughs> wow I, he was yeah he was actually my first pick but then i was like ah, oh, we don't need too many comedians we have ben stiller in there <laughs> wait actually yeah, i was like that was actually my first pick yeah <laughs> Just too perfect. <laughs> he ends up in a lot of these stories. He was in our last story where the man murders a, throws someone down a well. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Wilson. It's just like Matthew McConaughey plays like these 
sort of hobo roles that I've been seeing lately. So he just right like inspirational like hobo. hobo. Yeah. Yeah. I'm but Owen Wilson him. was not left out. He plays Bombo Tim. Was it Bombo Timian Hutchkutch? Yeah. Okay. Well, what about what about Mr. Folsom? Well, who are you guys putting for Mr. Folsom? Three to three, two, one, or yeah. I, okay. okay. Three, right? We all three of us. Okay. okay. Three, two, one. Tom. Hayes. Robert Evers. Oh, yes. Okay. I, have a... Wait, I, I didn't not. hear either Tom of Hanks. you. Tom Hanks. Did you say Tom Hanks too, Michael? Yeah, Tom Hanks. Okay. Did you actually say that? No, he said me. First time I said Bobby, but oh, just, oh, but it's really I, Tom Hanks. I said Jimmy Stewart, but he, you know, Jimmy Stewart is the original Tom Hanks. Really, if you think about it. Oh, if you think about it, well, I'm gonna have to think about that actually. <laughs> I feel like Jimmy yeah. Stewart and Tom. Maybe well, Tom Hanks has played characters like all over, but Jimmy Stewart kind of always plays the same character. I feel like, and it's kind of someone who seems dumb but is actually understands everything that's going on. So stuff would have to change a little bit. I feel like to believe Jimmy Stewart as Mr. Folsom. Yeah, I was just like, this is like Forrest Gump, like, mm. you know, Forrest Gump with a less, like his mm. life just didn't start getting exciting later. Mm. I even got the slugs, slug sandwiches. Vibes. Got vibes <laughs> from that movie, The Terminal, as well. Oh. I started thinking of Tom Hanks' role in that movie. Mm. I don't know The Terminal. He's wandering oh. around a terminal. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Literally sleeps in an the airport. Terminal be retirement. <laughs> retirement. The terminal. Oh man, this is that was rife. That was way more uh, rife for act- actors and an all-star cast than I had originally thought when I read the story. Mm, yes, we put our heads together to cast Mr. Folsom in La Banana. Star-studded, okay. really. Need Netflix to make it happen and then cancel it after one season. Yeah, Alec Baldwin might not make it through this one. Oh, yes, that'll be a different kind of cancellation. Yeah. <laughs> he might shoot the dancing bears. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, uh, Papa, Woody. Well, thanks. Thanks for coming on, Mike. That was fun. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. I'll see you for our retirement with three dancing bears. I must start thinking about your pension in Taiwan now. Oh, damn. I'll bring reusable plates. Yeah. Let's <laughs> bring compostable plates. I still want to throw them. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never look at sandwiches the same way again. No. Yes. To murder for sandwich. <laughs> All right. Like a... Anyway, thank you very much. Great to see you guys. Uh, we'll thank be, you. Uh, we'll be back soon for another one. And uh, Mike, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the upcoming deep overstock issue since you are the editor the fiction editor for deep overstock tell us a little bit about i think it's august 31st so people will be listening to this much later i think we'll be on i think early childhood development actually (laughs) will be our our theme for that one yeah so So we're doing a shameless plug we're doing a shameless plug i think we're doing uh for deep overstock we are doing um early childhood development because our editor-in-chief mickey has just had a baby so he wants to write about his experiences so if anyone else has baby stories or growing up stories please send those in mike where can they send them in tell us about deep overstock i'll drink from my boot okay <laughs> all right let me get into my you know i spilled on myself my hosting voice So I'm going to do new, was old arrivals and then this one, all right? I'll just go to talk about uh, Deep Overstock and um, how to submit to Deep Overstock because by when we're listening to this episode, we will be on early childhood development, which will be very exciting. So for any interesting, in- give me a second. This is, let me Words. turn the camera off. They're tough. <laughs> the camera. Okay. Sorry. Carry on. <clears throat> Putting me on the spot. If you're interested in submitting to Deep Overstock, please visit deepoverstock.com, the bookseller's journal. Next month, the next quarter, I should say, we're getting into early childhood developments. So you can submit any short stories, poetry, 
comic strips, interviews, whatever you want. And keep that in mind that our due date for that will be, is it December 31st? No, I think February 31st or March 31st. Look at deepoverstock.com slash submissions guidelines. I'm going to do it weird too and mute my video and submit to Deep Overstock. Now we better go. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you very much, Emma. Great to see you both. There it Bye. is. Oh, no, I was gone. Okay. Bye. No, I'm see still, I needed to contribute. Okay. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, guys. God Bye. It sounds like a story to me. Some crazy fable that you would not believe.